Shalom. Salam alaikum. Welcome to Sagpa. I'm Trevor Page, and I'll be the moderator for today's session. For those of you that are new to Sagpa, we have a 30-minute presentation, followed by a buffet lunch, and then we'll have a 30-minute question and answer. And we end promptly at 1.30. Please switch your cell phones to silent. Our session is recorded. It's recorded both by SACPA and by Shaw TV. Shaw TV will be broadcasting today's presentation several times a week uh, over the next week, uh, several times a day, I should say, over the next week. And the presentation and the Q&A will be on the SAGPA website, www.sagpa.ca. Uh, please put $14 in the little bowls on the tables in front of you for the lunch and ask someone at the table to count it so that we know that the total amount is correct. Now for today's session. Israel at 70, past, present, and future. In the international arena, there's nothing more that inflames the passions than a, de a debate about Israel and the plight of the Palestinian people. Indeed, at Sagpa, we've discussed aspects of the topic over 10 times in the last decade. Many of you will remember the presentation last May by the local Canadian Palestinian, Mohammed Abu Shaban. And then, of course, in the build-up to Tuesday's anniversary, few will have escaped the graphic images on TV and in our newspapers of the demonstrations and the carnage on the Gaza border. Our speakers today are Judy Shapiro, the Associate Executive Director of the Calgary Jewish Federation, Jared Shaw, who is the Chair of the Community Relations Committee of the Calgary Jewish Federation and Jeffrey Smith, who is a board member of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Please welcome our speakers to SAGPA. <laughs> Gerard Shaw will be speaking first. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. As Trevor mentioned, uh, recent events over the last week um, have certainly been at the forefront of the news, both with the embassy move and with the uh, conflict at the Gaza border. Because of the timeliness of this, they are not specifically part of our presentation, but we certainly welcome and encourage questions about that situation, both situations. So I'll, I'll just quickly mention that. Our presentation today, Israel at 70, past, present, and future. 
Seventy years ago this week, Israel declared independence. Before the jubilant Jewish population could finish dancing their traditional hora, all the Arab countries in the region attacked, and the 1948 War of Independence began. The population then was approximately 800,000 people. Today, that population is close to 9 million. It was a very poor country in 1948. What's it like today? Israel is at the forefront of high tech. There are more Israeli companies traded on the New York Stock Exchange than any other country aside from the US and China. It's known for incredible innovation. Cell phone technology, pill camera technology, pills that are ingested with cameras that allow you to see the digestive tract, amazing medical technology, medications, etc. Israel is also incredibly diverse. It is home to Jews, Christians, Muslims, Druze, black, white, and brown people, people who participate in all aspects of Israeli life. It is the only democracy in the Middle East where there are free elections, universal education and health care, an independent judiciary, and a very noisy and robust free press. But there is one flaw in this beautiful scene. Israel is still at war with many of its neighbors, and there is no resolution in sight for the Israel-Palestine conflict. So today we're going to look at that conflict and try to put some of this troubled and complicated history into perspective. As we see in the news, there is often a significant misconception about Israel's size. Given the disproportionate amount of time we see Israel in the news and the images that we see, we often are thought of, Israel is often thought of as a real Goliath. Well, take a look at this particular map. Israel is a tiny country surrounded by Arab or Muslim states many, most of whom, do not recognize Israel's right to exist. So it is no wonder that Israel is very protective of its borders. It's very conscious at all times that this is the one and only Jewish state in the world. There are 50 countries in the world with Muslim majorities. The Holy Land, particularly the holy city of Jerusalem, has been very important to the Jewish people throughout history. There's been a consistent Jewish presence in Israel and in Jerusalem for 3,000 years. Since the Jewish people were forced to leave and were scattered all over the world, every day Jewish people face Jerusalem three times a day for prayer. A significant part of Jewish prayer is about the return to Zion, another name for Israel or the Holy Land, and synonymous with Jerusalem. The desire was only a distant dream until the late 1800s, when the Jews, like many other people around the world, started developing nationalist aspirations and actively working for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Israel. This is Theodore Herzl. In the 1890s, 
Herzl, a reporter. He was also the founder of modern Zionism. He was an assimilated Jew, not particularly religious. Because of his personal experience with anti-Semitism, he came to the conclusion that the only way the Jewish people would be free of anti-Semitism would be to establish a Jewish homeland. At that time, Jews were discriminated against throughout Europe. To a greater and lesser extent in different places, from restrictions on where they could live, jobs they could hold, to outright violence. It was because of this that Herzl founded the Zionist movement, which lobbied for a Jewish state and which worked to help people move to what was then known as Palestine. Now, it's important to understand that what is meant by Palestine, Palestine at that time did not refer to the country of Palestine with Palestinian people. This was the name, Palestine was the name given by the Romans after conquering the land and crushing Jewish revolts. So, what was happening in, this, in Palestine at that time? The country we know as Israel and Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire from the 1500s to right after the First World War. This mighty empire stretched, as you can see, through Turkey, the Middle East, into North Africa. During the Ottoman period, the Palestinians were a very poor, small population, the majority of whom were Arabs. But there was always a Jewish presence, particularly in Jerusalem. The empire fell after World War I, and the League of Nations gave different countries the power to rule over different parts of that Ottoman Empire. The area known as Palestine, and what is also now Jordan, was given to the British to administer as the British Mandate. As part of the Mandate Agreement passed by the League of Nations and later the United Nations, Britain was mandated to allow Jewish immigration and settlement in Palestine. The area of Jordan was soon severed off from mandatory Palestine, and the Hashemite kingdom became the rulers of Jordan. The British had a problem in Palestine. In 1917, they had given their support to the establishment of a Jewish homeland. But at that same time, there were conflicting Arab interests in that region. From 1917 to 1948, the Zionists in Europe and the new pioneers in Palestine lobbied hard for a Jewish state, and there were many clashes between Arab and Jewish populations. Immigration of Jews, when permitted, was supported by a significant amount of land purchases, legal land purchases, by groups like the JNF, the Jewish National Fund. After 1945... Sympathy for the Zionist idea increased after the world realized the full extent of the Holocaust and the attempted extermination of the Jewish people. For many people in the world, the Holocaust confirmed Herzl's philosophy that the Jewish people would never be truly free of oppression unless they had a state of their own. In 1947, the United Nations passed a partition plan for Palestine, dividing the country into two nation states, 
a Jewish state, which you can see in blue, and an Arab state, which you can see in orange. Notice that Jerusalem was to be an international city, and both Arab and Jewish states were strangely divided into three separate chunks each. It is important to note that the government-in-waiting of Israel accepted this plan. The Arabs did not. The British announced that they would be ending mandatory rule and withdrawing from Palestine no later than August 1948. And it was on May 14, 1948, that Israel declared its independence. Immediately, the armies of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt attacked the new state. When that war ended, Israel was much larger than it had been under the partition plan. Part of Jerusalem was now within Israeli borders, but not the old city where the holiest site to the Jewish people is located, Western Wall, Temple Mount. From that moment, Jews were not allowed into the old city of Jerusalem, which was now governed by Jordan. New borders were one consequence of the War of Independence. The other consequence was the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem. There were three reasons that Palestinians left during this war. One, there was war. Just like Syria today, when there is a war, people flee. Number two, they were encouraged by their leaders to leave. They were promised that they would return once the Jews were driven out. And the third, yes, there were instances where people were forced to leave. In any case, somewhere between 475 and 750,000 people became refugees. These refugees were settled in camps in Lebanon, Jordan, Gaza, and the vast majority of them were never resettled, never granted citizenship of another country. In fact, in refugee camps in Lebanon to this day, Palestinian refugees are not permitted to hold many professions. Today, there are over 5 million descendants of Palestinian refugees registered with the UN, 1.5 million still living in refugee camps. It is important to note that there are also 1.5 million Arab citizens of Israel, those who chose to stay. They were granted full citizenship, they can vote, and there are Arab representatives in the Israeli Parliament and Supreme Court. It's also important to note that a similar number of refugees, over a half a million, fled persecution in Arab countries and settled in Israel between 1948 and 1967. Jewish refugees. Jewish presence in what are now Arab lands long predate Islam and the Arab conquest of the Middle East and go back to biblical times. In 1945, there were approximately 866,000 Jews living in communities throughout the Arab world. Today, there are fewer than 7,000. 
I'm going to turn it over to Judy Shapiro. My turn to speak. Um, we're going to skip a few decades and go to 1967 when there was another war called the Six-Day War. Um, in early 67, the level of hostile and strident rhetoric coming from the leaders of Israel's neighbors increased. Troops were built up in the Sinai, and, uh, which was Israel's southern border, and the Straits of Tehran were virtually were closed, cutting off Israel's uh, port of Eilat. Those things led the Israeli leadership to the conclusion that they had no choice but to go to war. After successfully bombing and obliterating the Egyptian and Syrian air forces, Israel won the war in only six days. And at the end of the war, Israel's borders were drastically different. Um, as you can see, um, Israel had occupied the Sinai Peninsula down there. I guess I need the mic. The Sinai Peninsula and Gaza from Egypt. It had occupied what on this map is Judea and Samaria, Samaria, Samaria which is uh, the west bank of the Jordan River. That was part of Jordan. And the Golan Heights that had been part of Syria. Israel begged Jordan not to enter this war, but it did and lost a lot of uh, territory. The most important thing from an Israeli perspective, though, was that the Israeli army took East Jerusalem. As I think we mentioned before, Jordan had ruled all of East Jerusalem from 1948 to 1967. During those 20 years, Jews were not allowed into that area. They were not allowed to, play, to pray at the Western Wall. All the synagogues in the old city, some of which had been around for centuries, were destroyed. So you can only imagine how the Jewish people felt when they were finally allowed to return to their holiest site. Um, so it was a, gr a great celebration. Israel annexed Jerusalem shortly after the 67 war, but left control of the Temple Mount, the site of the Dome of the Rock, the beautiful golden domed mosque that you can picture in your heads. Um, they left control of that area to the Muslim Waqf, or Religious Council, which is based in Jordan and which governs that, the Temple Mount. All religions are free to worship in the, old, in the city. And in fact, the only re restriction now is on Jews praying on the Temple Mount. Jews are not allowed to have prayer services on top of the uh, Temple Mount. In 67, Israel naively thought that this enormous victory would, learn, would lead to peace talks and the trading of land for peace. But that was not to be. In fact, the Arab League held a meeting in Khartoum right after the Six-Day War and resolved what has become known as the Three No's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with it. After the Six-Day War, there were other wars. There were terror attacks constantly. But let's talk about... Palestinian nationalism. In effect, until the 1960s, the battle for the Palestinian residents of what is now Israel and the uh, disputed territories was being fought by the Arab world as a whole. The Arab states surrounding Israel, none of whom recognized the Jewish state, um, represented all of the Arab people of the region. There was really no talk of a two-state solution. 
for all the time that Egypt ruled Gaza and Jordan ruled the West Bank, there was never any talk of an independent Palestinian state. In the 1960s, the Palestinians did begin to organize their own nationalist organizations, primary, primary, whoops, wrong slide. Primary among them was the um, PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization led, led by Yasser Arafat, but there were others. Um, all of these groups believed in violence as a means to achieving the liberation of Palestine from Israel, and we're talking about the liberation of all of Palestine. Um, the late 60s and early 70s was a time of terrorist attacks outside Israel aimed at Israelis or Jews. An example of that was the massacre of the Israeli team in Munich in 1972. 11, um, 11 Israeli athletes were murdered. Uh, the PLO emerged as the leader of all the Palestinian groups, and in 1974, this is Yasser Arafat at the United Nations in 88. Um, in 1974, it was recognized by all the Arab nations as a sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, but the Israelis refused to talk to the PLO until much later because of its terrorist wing and because the PLO charter which was written in 1964, calls for the liberation of Palestine through armed struggle. And we're talking, again, all of Palestine. There was no talk of a two-state solution at that point. There's, we've been talking about a lot of war, but there were some glimmers of hope. The first came in 1978 when a very, very courageous man, Sad, uh, Anwar Sadat, uh, called the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Sadat was the President of Egypt, called the, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Menachem Begin at the time, and asked if he could come and address the Knesset. He was the first Arab leader to extend a hand of friendship. It was amazing that these two guys could make peace because they were um, Begin was a right-wing leader. He was part of a terrorist organization before the birth of the state, and he made peace with Egypt. As part of that peace treaty, which has been in effect since 1979, um, Israel gave back the Sinai Peninsula. So we'll go to that map again. So that entire area was returned to Egypt, except for Gaza, because Egypt didn't want Gaza either. The peace between the two countries is quite um, cool, but it is peace, and there's great cooperation on um, the Sinai in the Sinai where ISIS is developing uh, is uh, developing a presence. Um, it wasn't till 1994 that another treaty was signed, this time with Jordan, but there were um, during. Okay, so I missed something. Okay, the next thing that happened was the Intifada in the 80s, where the Palestinian youth started revolting against the occupation. That led eventually to what were called the Oslo Peace Accords, named because they were in Oslo. Um, again, these were true horrible enemies. Rabin and Arafat hated each other, and people say that... Um, to get them to, to take this picture was not easy. But the two enemies recognized the 
The, P the Palestinians recognized Israel's right to exist, and the Israelis recognized the PLO as legitimate authority uh, for the Palestinians. Under the Accords, much of the rule gradually of the West Bank and Gaza was handed over to the Palestinian Authority. So to this point, the major civilian um, populations, 80% of the major civilian populations in the West Bank are under the rule of the Palestinian Authority. From 2007, uh, from 2000, in 2000 and in 2007, um, there were efforts to conclude the what started in Oslo and create a Palestinian state. And um, the Israelis, both in 2000 and 2007, offered what they considered to be a very reasonable um, Palestinian state in 98% of the West Bank. The, those, um, the uh, Israeli suggestion was rejected out of hand with no counter offers from the Palestinians. They received the Israeli offer and walked away um, with a little of, um, intervention from the states, but still, uh, okay, we've got a lot, <laughs> a lot more uh, um, territory to cover here. Anyway, um, the, uh, uh, actually, I'll just turn over to, to Jeff now. Um, On the Okay, thank you. Um, the um, after the those those attempts in 2000 and 2008, there uh, there were there were those offers that were made to create Palestinian states that had, didn't ever result in a peace treaty. Uh, no counter offers were ever received from the Palestinians. Um, and uh, in, uh, so let's talk about Gaza. Okay, should we go to, okay, thank you. Um, in uh, 2005, the Israelis uh, unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. That is, they withdrew without any kind of peace treaty with the Palestinians, and their hope was that in doing so, um, they would be able to uh, stir some, some negotiations that would enable the Palestinians to improve the plight of the people uh, in Gaza. Um, it was very traumatic for Israel, and as this slide shows, they, they removed uh, numerous settlements and 9,000 settlers, some of, which, uh, some of whom had to be forcibly re removed by their own soldiers. It didn't result in, in an improvement um, in 2006, there were, there were um, elections that took place in the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas won control of the legislative section of that, and eventually uh, won control of... <laughs> I'm going to have a little helper. Eventually won control of all of Gaza and expelled the, um, expelled the uh, Palestinian Authority entirely from Gaza. After that, after, Ga after Hamas took control of Gaza, uh, and Hamas is truly a rejectionist organization, its charter calls for the replacing of all of Israel 
uh, with, with a Palestinian Islamic State. It doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist. It is clearly not a partner in peace, and Israel does not uh, have any negotiations or relationship with Hamas in any way. Hamas, on the other hand, has been winning increasing support among the Palestinian population. And um, after winning that uh, parliamentary election in 2006 and taking over uh, Gaza uh, in 2007 and expelling the Palestinian Authority, Israel and Egypt uh, instituted a blockade of Gaza uh, to control uh, uh, goods going into Gaza, as particularly arms and the ability to create weapons. Uh, and this has been tacitly supported by the, uh, the Palestinian Authority as well, which controls the flow of utilities in and out of Gaza and, has re and is restricting them to three hours per day. Uh, So uh, Hamas has resorted to a tactic of, of, uh, of firing rockets into Israel as part of their uh, the military efforts to, um, uh, against Israel. Um, and the rockets are quite primitive. Uh, they often miss their targets, but they are aimed at civilian population. Uh, and that has created a very traumatic psychological effect on the population in South Israel as they have to run to uh, air raids uh, um, or bomb shelters every time these air raid sirens come off. They have also resorted to the tactic of digging tunnels under the border. The tunnels are used to attempt to infiltrate Israel with, uh, w uh, by terrorists, uh, they have succeeded on several occasions and, uh, and succeeded in, in carrying out some horrendous attacks on civilians in South Lebanon, or in South, uh, South Israel. So uh, where are we today? This is Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is the president of the Palestinian Authority, which is in charge of civilian rule of 80% of the Palestinian population of the West Bank. Uh, he's 83 years old. Uh, there is no clear successor to him. He was uh, elected 13 years ago for a four-year term, and he is still in power. The Israelis uh, don't object uh, to, to the fact that there's been no uh, elections uh, because they fear they would end up with Hamas controlling not only Gaza but also, uh, also the West Bank. Internationally, uh, Israel, as this conflict continues and the prospects for peace fade, Israel is constantly criticized and unfairly in our opinion. I need to emphasize that we do not object and the Jewish community does not object to the criticism of, of Israel, Israel policies, the Israeli government, but the criticism of Israel can and does cross the line into anti-Semitism. And you, you hear this complaint from the Jewish population a lot that, that certain criticisms are anti-Semitic. So where does it cross the line? Natan Sharansky, um, Natan Sharansky came up with these three Ds. 
demonization, uh, double standard, and delegitimization. Demonization occurs when the Jewish state is uh, its actions are blown out of all sensible proportion when comparisons are made between Israelis and Nazis, for example, or between Palestinian refugee camps and Auschwitz. That's anti-Semitism. It's not legitimate criticism of Israeli policy. The second D of double standards, you see Israel being criticized for human rights abuses all the time when the uh, abuses of much more abhorrent uh, human rights uh, abusers are ignored, and those would be countries such as China, Cuba, Iran, Syria, and other Arab countries. The third D is delegitimization. When Israel's fundamental right to exist alone among all the peoples on the earth, Israel's fundamental right to exist as an independent nation is, is questioned. Through delegitimization, that is also anti-Semitism. So as Israelis celebrate 70 years of independence and the phenomenal accomplishments of this young country, all of which were accomplished while under the tremendous pressure of, of, of being uh, surrounded by enemies and threatened with extinction, um, they also hope for peace, a peace that they've not enjoyed for even one day since the state was created. History has shown that Israelis love a hug. When peace is offered, land is returned. Autonomy is offered. Peace is possible. But when faced with terrorism and continuous attacks, and when put in a defensive position, Israelis elect hawkish leaders, and the prospects for peace recede. Israel is the only country in the world whose right to exist is questioned. And until that right is universally recognized, until the Palestinians accept reality and are willing to accept a two-state solution, until Iran and countries like it stop funding terrorist organizations bent on Israel's destruction, we, won't, we don't see a whole lot of hope for peace. Those conditions need to change. And on that pessimistic note, uh, we'll end this presentation. Thank you.